Hi, this is Kate Gerson, and I'm here this morning with the honor of sitting down with former U.S. Education Secretary John B. King Jr., who served as secretary under Barack Obama. He has recently signed on to take the helm as CEO of EdTrust. John, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. We're going to just have a little chat about school, about education, what we've learned and what we're thinking about moving forward. So, John, thank you for being here. Thanks for the opportunity. I want to start with a blanket question, a, a wide open question, given the, the state of our nation. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. You know, I'm also very conscious of the challenges we face. There's no question that uh, we've got work to do to close achievement gaps. We've got work to do to make sure that, that we are supporting our low-income students, our students of color, our English learners, our students with disabilities in the way that we should. But there are educators all over the country showing up every day to their classrooms trying to do the best they can for their mm-hmm. kids. I think we've seen a, a, over the last few weeks a real expression of faith in public education from across American society. And the question for us as educators is how do we keep getting better? Mm-hmm. You know, we have the highest graduation rate from high school we've ever had as a country at 83%. But that still means there are 17% of kids who aren't even making it across the graduation stage in four years. What are we doing to support that? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have more students going on to college, but too many of them get there and don't persist and actually don't end up finishing with a quality degree. What are we doing about that? How are we changing higher education to make sure we support students to get through college, to graduate, ready to succeed in the workforce? So we've certainly got work to do, but the faith and commitment of educators uh, keeps me hopeful. Yeah, so I've noticed that the choice you've made after serving in the Obama administration was to take on a role at Ed Trust. And the instinct that I have is that represents the sense of hope that you have about what can happen now in schools moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about what we as individuals who work in schools or for schools or by schools or with schools can do to to live out that hope you're holding. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the Ed Trust really, it, it has a long tradition of advocating for low-income students, students of color, for advocating for civil rights and education. And that's what I'm committed to personally. It's what's driven my whole career. And the work there is an opportunity to support folks in states, in districts, doing the work on behalf of kids. You know, it starts in the classroom, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, the heart of education is the interaction between teacher and student. And it's critically important that educators are uh, equipping kids with skills, not just for college and career readiness, but readiness to be successful citizens. It's critical that as they do that, they're attentive to the ways in which we have historically underserved low-income students, students Mm -hmm. of color. English learners, students with disabilities, that they're trying to find ways in the classroom to support the mm-hmm. success of every student. And then as educators mm-hmm. and as folks who care about schools, we've got to support teachers. We've got to make sure teachers have high-quality professional development, that they have uh, decent compensation and decent working conditions that make it possible to, to, to focus on their kids in their classroom. Uh, we've got to make sure that our school communities are safe and inclusive environments. And we've got to make sure at the school level, at the district level, we're constantly asking ourselves the tough equity questions. And that's something we aren't always good at as a society. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see African-American students nearly four times as likely to be suspended from pre-K mm-hmm. as white students, we haven't asked ourselves enough hard equity questions. Four-year-olds. You know, when you see that we have high schools around the country, disproportionately those serving low-income students and students of color, where you can't even take Algebra 2 or physics or chemistry, Mm -hmm. Uh, that means we're not asking ourselves hard enough questions about equity. So we've got work to do, and part of where EdTrust can be a partner to communities is to ask those hard equity questions. Right. So you and I share a thing in common, which is that we were raised by educators, right? And so we grew up in households where everybody woke up every morning, got dressed, went to school, uh, and kept working hard to, to move students. And so one of the things I want to ask you about is, like, we have been at this. We have been working hard at this. And so when you're asking us to ask tough questions of ourselves, where are the, where are the lines that you want us to kind of push ourselves and each other on? Because we are already in there. We are already devoted to our kids. We already hold them. We already stay up late thinking about who can I, who can I get farther 
tomorrow. But you're saying we have to ask ourselves tough questions. What kind of question, What kind of conversations do you want us to be having? What kind of questions do you want us to be having, confronting together? One, one is around, around belief, and do we act each day in our classrooms on the belief that every child can succeed? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we've talked about many times, I think there are ways that implicit bias seeps into our interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very human, but we've got to be vigilant in saying, are we really doing what we can for every student to make sure that they're successful? We've got to ask ourselves in our instructional approach, are we challenging students? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we holding high enough expectations? You know, when students are struggling, are we responding by lowering the expectation or providing the support necessary mm-hmm. uh, to not only meet but exceed the expectation, right? And we've got to ask ourselves tough societal questions. Are we providing the same level of resources to our kids who need the most? Mm-hmm. Um, are we providing resources commensurate to the challenges mm-hmm. that they face? You know, why is it that more than 60 years after Brown versus Board of Education, we still see so many schools that are racially and socioeconomically isolated? It doesn't have to be that way. That's a set of policy choices that we've made. So we've got to confront those, those challenges. You know, I think for the individual classroom teacher each day, trying to grapple with, you know, if it didn't work yesterday, mm-hmm. what's the new strategy? What am I doing differently mm-hmm. today? Mm-hmm. Never giving up on our kids. Critical. You know, reevaluating our practices, taking student performance as feedback, right? Mm-hmm. If, uh, you know, if uh, you give a quiz and, you know, only 10% of the kids pass the quiz, mm-hmm. that's feedback mm-hmm. on... What, what we need to do differently as we come back mm-hmm. tomorrow to try and equip them with those skills. And that discipline to see student performance not as a sorting mechanism. Mm-hmm. This set of kids, they're, you know, they're good at math. This other mm-hmm. set of kids, maybe they're not so good at math. But rather saying, everybody can succeed in math. What can I do to create the environment where that happens? That's critical. People are talking a lot lately about implicit bias, and one of the ways I'm, I'm trying to understand that is, is just the idea of unconscious bias. And I know that it's hard for me um, as an educator who's spent so many years of my life to really devoted to ensuring that all, all kids, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what they look like, um, what they're living through, can can move against grade-level standards. It is so hard for me to... When I hear you talk about that, it's so hard for me to say, you're not talking about me, surely. It's informed by bias, but it's not, it's not me, because I don't mean it that way. I don't, I don't think about my students that way. And I'm just wondering, you know, I, there's a lot of conversation now about, about this idea of implicit bias, and I'm just wondering how you see the conversation happening in schools. Like, where do you think all of us, regardless of who we are and how we think of ourselves, how do we engage with this question that you're posing when I've never considered myself to be certainly racist, but I've certainly, I've also never considered myself to be even deeply informed by bias. Mm. So how do I, how do I frame the advice that you're giving if it's not, it's not me? Well, I think what we all have to confront is that implicit bias is part of the human condition, that we all are operating with implicit biases, and that the discipline that we're trying to create is the willingness to unearth those, confront them, and address them. And, you know, we could talk about the research on this, which is very clear, right? So there are messages that we are taking in from our experience, from the media, uh, from the world around us, and that shapes our perspective in ways that we may not be conscious of. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's hard as we do this work is to separate implicit bias from racism. This is not saying that um, an individual is acting with hate in their heart. It's mm-hmm. saying that mm-hmm. an individual has biases as a result of being human being and living in this society and then what do we do to overcome those biases and so you know what are the assumptions that we're making as we interact with students in our school Mm -hmm. Um, you know this often comes up in placement in advanced placement courses Mm -hmm. for example or in gifted programs and we know there's evidence 
there of bias. We see it in disproportionate placement of students of color in uh, special education services and in more uh, isolated special mm -hmm. education environments. Or even tracked courses. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to challenge that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also the individual interaction, right? How do we respond mm -hmm. to a particular behavior? How do we respond to a particular question? How do we respond to a student struggling? Mm -hmm. You know, we see this come up around gender and math, mm -hmm. right? Do we react mm -hmm. to the female student struggling mm -hmm. in a different way than we might react to a male student struggling? Right. And do we praise in a different way? Do we praise knowing that for all students, hard work and their effort to get better is the mm -hmm. thing we want to praise, not just assuming that they're smart at math or, oh, you're that so good at They banged it math. out and got it right. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that, that discipline is a challenging one to develop. It should start in teacher and principal preparation, mm -hmm. right? It, it shouldn't, the first time you're dealing with those issues shouldn't be when you get to the school. But, mm -hmm. but we know that's a place where we mm -hmm. need professional development at every level. Right. So if, if, we're, all, if we're residing in school and we're ready to engage in this conversation, um, we're ready to participate in this discourse with our, with our colleagues, um, with, with the folks we work with every day. I don't know, speaking as a white person, I, I'm often really scared about how to talk about this. Like if I talk about this, I might say something wrong. I might say something that you as a black man or a Latino man, that I offend you. Like something comes out of my mouth while I'm trying to sort this out with you or with the other people we work with, I might embarrass myself. I might say something that is in itself microaggression or transgression. And, I, and I'm often not sure how to orient to the conversation, um, how to be helpful. And I know that's not just uh, a problem white people face. What's your advice for us as we, you know, school by school, community by community, try to figure out how to even have this conversation, how to even begin to talk about it so that we might examine more closely and in a safer environment, what, what, we're, what we're doing each day, the choices that we're making or where our biases are and how they're informing our behavior. Yeah. I think in, in all sort of diversity and inclusion work, it's really important for the leaders and facilitators to set a tone around safety mm -hmm. and to acknowledge at the outset that people may feel uncomfortable, that people may say things to each other that may make each other uncomfortable, that we've got to name that. Mm -hmm. And we got to assume good intentions, mm -hmm. um, but then we got to live that out mm -hmm. by acknowledging when we mm -hmm. said something wrong and, and then trying to fix it. I, I, you know, I think this is why, and one of the reasons why creating diverse communities is so important, mm -hmm. because if you aren't operating in a diverse school context or a diverse If you're isolated context, with people who look like right, you. Then yeah. you're, you're not going to confront those things. You're not going to deal with them. You're not going to get practice in dealing with them. Mm -hmm. You know, I often say to folks about diversity, diversity in schools is not just something we do because it will improve outcomes for low-income kids or kids of color, although it will. White students need diversity in school, too. They need to interact with diverse educators, too. They need to interact with diverse peers because... The reality in 21st century world is you are very likely to have a coworker who's of a different race, a supervisor who practices a different religion, mm -hmm. a supplier who speaks a different language, a, um, um, a customer who's in another country. And so your ability to deal in those diverse environments is really a skill, an mm -hmm. asset, mm -hmm. uh, a college and career readiness asset, a citizenship asset, a workplace asset. Um, the other thing we've got to do is we've got to find ways to see the world from someone else's perspective. And I, and I think, um, you know, literature is one way to do that. Uh, like what? Where you, where you through the text that you read, you know. I think about the book. I just read a book with my daughters, um, Brown Girl Dreaming. Mm -hmm. It's about experience of an uh, African-American girl living in the South and then in New York City and growing up. That book is not just for... African-American girls or Latino girls. That's for all students, right? That, that's an opportunity for, you know, a white male student growing up in Kansas to mm -hmm. see the world from the perspective of an African-American girl in Brooklyn, right? Mm -hmm. Through mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. powerful 
text. Mm -hmm. um, President Obama talked about this in his farewell address in Chicago. He talked about, actually quoted a line from To Kill a Mockingbird mm -hmm. and talked about this idea that you can't really know where someone else is coming from until you've sort of thought about the world through their eyes. That is a powerful, powerful thing. That, that, that reading, mm -hmm. that poetry, that theater can make possible. But so too is the conversation. Yeah. And we've got to create environments where that's possible. Yeah. Where, where we can tolerate being uncomfortable and mm -hmm. talk to each other. Mm -hmm. As I'm thinking about bias and I'm thinking about other perspectives, I'm thinking about the issues of circumstance. I'm thinking about the environment from which a child comes to us, right? Like if they're, they're walking into our classroom without breakfast or without safety at home for a variety of reasons, whatever obstacles they've encountered, be it substance abuse or physical abuse or tough circum just tough circumstances. Where do you see bias playing out as it relates to this kid is in trouble, this kid is in, maybe even in crisis, how do I how do I orient to this child? My instinct as a, as an educator is one of of love often of like let me protect him, let me like care for him, let me make sure he's he's been fed and that you know he's. I've, I know middle school teachers who like have deodorant in their drawer, right? Like there there are like all of these acts that we do out of like love and protection, um, and even advocacy for students who are coming to us, entering the classroom, entering the school building coming from a, a situation that is, to say the least, suboptimal. And so one of the things I'm wondering is, you're, how, do you, how do you think about our bias as educators as it relates to a student who is coming to us with difficult circumstances? Mm -hmm. And how, mm -hmm. how do you see that informing our expectations? And what should we do about that? Because it's a very human response to say, you know what, you don't, like, this text is really complex, and it's and it's going to take a lot out of you. I am not convinced that you've got it in you to handle this today. So, why don't you read this like more soothing thing, or more you know, sort of work on the homework you missed last week? How do you see us making choices based on a kid's circumstance, and and what would, what would you prefer we do? Yeah, I mean, this is a place where we get caught in false choices, right? And we say, well. You know, some folks say, oh, well, school doesn't matter because it's all these things outside of school, mm -hmm. poverty, mm -hmm. trauma, and the things that affect The real problem is X. Exactly. Yeah. And then there are other people who say, well, school's all that matters, and those other things are outside of school are irrelevant. Well, that's also false, right? Both are false. Mm -hmm. We need more community schools. We need more schools that have food pantries. We need more uh, cities that have communities that have policies in place around affordable housing. And, and we need better employment programs for folks who are out of work would need to get skills so they can get back to work. There's a lot we need to do that wraps around school. Around that kid and his family. To support that kid and, and his family, absolutely. And as educators, we ought to be fighting for that. Mm -hmm. We ought to be fighting mm -hmm. for that in our city, in our state, in our country, and advocating for those things. And simultaneously in our classrooms, we also have to be asking, how do we ensure that each child gets the skills mm -hmm. that he or she is going to need to succeed in life. And, you know, I was one of those kids. Teachers could have said, you know, here is an African-American, Latino, male, student family in crisis. What chances he have in giving up on me? What do you mean you were in crisis? You know, so I lost my mom when I was eight. Uh, passed away from a heart attack. Lived with my dad, who was quite sick undiagnosed Alzheimer's. Home is very unstable and insecure and uncertain day mm -hmm. to day. Mm -hmm. Then he passed away when I was 12. Moved around between family members and schools. Through all of that period, folks could have given up on me and said, well, what chances he have given all these things going on outside of school? Mm -hmm. but, I, but I'm only sitting here today, only alive today, only had the opportunity to become an educator because mm -hmm. teachers said... No, I'm going to invest in this child. I'm going to give. I'm going to believe in them and give them hope and opportunity and skills. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read the New York Times every day. We're going to do productions of Midsummer Night's Dream and Alice in Wonderland. We're going to do the things that will help this child see a world beyond, for me, Canarsie, Brooklyn. So I'm grateful that teachers did that. And I think the thing we have to hold each of us as educators is, yes, we've got to work to 
wrap supports around our kids and their families, and we've got to work to respond to the very real traumas and crises in kids' lives. And I want that teacher to have the deodorant in the drawer. I want that, you know, that principal to figure out how to have the breakfast program and the lunch program and the dinner program and the food you take home in a bag over the weekend because they're, mm-hmm. they know so many of their kids are food insecure. And I also want educators to be in the classroom every day saying, we're going we're gonna to learn today. We're going to push forward today. And I believe that kids who are most at risk in some ways need that most desperately, mm-hmm. the opportunity to in school get the tools that are going to allow them to navigate life. Mr. Oswell is his name, right? It's hard for me to, to understand how he was looking at an 8-year-old and then a 12-year-old who was going through the experiences you were and wasn't overrun by compassion for like wanting, just wanting to protect you and wanting to, like, you must have, you must have shown up looking fried many, many days, right? And so how, like, how do you see, like, what is it in us as teachers that needs to kind of orient around, like, just presuming a resilience in you as a child and saying, I get it, but look at this mm-hmm. work today. Like, that was a decision he made yeah. Daily, yeah. right? Yeah. So Mr. Osler, he's my teacher in fourth of sixth grade, PS 276. Uh, two things. One is I think that he realized what a gift school can be for a young person. That mm-hmm. School can be fun and interesting and challenging and engaging. And that was a gift he wanted to give us each day. Mm-hmm. And... That was true for me as it was for everyone else in the class, right? He was trying to give us this gift of learning, the joy Hmm. in learning. And second thing is, school is a place I could be a kid, and I couldn't be a kid outside of school. You know, all through that period, I was figuring out how to eat, figuring out how to get laundry done, figuring out how to pay bills at home. I was doing all these adult things. Mm -hmm. But in school... You could be I, a young person. I got to be a kid mm-hmm. and got to have fun with theater and have, go to the Museum of Natural History and mm-hmm. go to the ballet and have this set of experiences. But it doesn't mean that as educators we shouldn't grapple with the challenges kids are facing outside of the classroom. It just means we have to hold that at the same time as we hold the notion that mm-hmm. class needs to be really good and interesting and compelling. Mm-hmm. And that that can help kids find peace and safety in a mm-hmm. different way. Like in some ways, the acts of compassion around a child who's suffering outside of school is to provide an environment where they can actually thrive. That is exactly right. I mean, I think about the gifts of reading and books, right? That for kids who are going through a difficult period, be able to escape into a book about a different place, a different world, a different set of experiences. Mm-hmm. So lovely. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, you know, if a child doesn't learn how to read and doesn't learn how to read well and doesn't have access to those worlds. Right, because a ton of those worlds are written in quite complex text. Yes. Right, yes. so if you're not set up to access those and just curl up with them, yes. you can't encounter that place. Yes. So what about this idea of, so we've talked a little bit about Mr. Osterweil persisting in spite of like looking objectively at your world and sort of asking you to show up every day intellectually regardless. I know you to be an incredibly persistent professional, father, all kinds of things, but professional. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit about us. I know your father and your uncle both had a real impact on you and kind of your sense of like, what is demanded of a person if they are going to um, be impactful in the world. And I wonder if you just mind telling us a little bit about kind of lessons you learned from both or either of them around, you know, when I look at you, I, j- I just see someone who shows up every day, mm-hmm. nonstop. Mm-hmm. I often call you the joyful warrior because you tend to be in a fairly affable mood, but you also just never, ever stop. And that didn't come from nowhere. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of what that's informed by? Sure. You know, my um, father was born in 1908. You know, he grew up in an era 
in American history when African Americans had very limited access to opportunity. And he became a teacher and a principal, the first African American principal in Brooklyn in the integrated school system. And, you know, he, he saw education as the path not only for him and for his family, but, but for his students. He, he saw that education could save lives, that it could be the difference in whether or not folks got access to opportunity. And he had this story he would tell when I was a little kid. And I always remember it. He um, told this story about playing basketball on the weekend with, with his brother, brother who was actually one of the first African-American players in integrated professional basketball. My father wasn't as good a basketball player as his brother, but they, he liked <laughs> to play. And so he was playing basketball, and he broke his wrist. And he was a teacher then, and he went into his school, and the principal said, you can't teach your class. And my father said, that, well, why is that? And he said, well, there's a rule. If you have a cast on, you can't, you can't teach your class. you got to go home. And my father said, well, that doesn't make any sense. And it's not going to affect, the cast not going to affect my ability to teach class. And the principal said, I'm sorry, you know, there's a rule. You can't go to teach your class. So my father walked over to the counter in their New York City schools at the time. There were these sort of high counters in the office. And still there, I believe. <laughs> still the true in a lot of schools, that's right. And he slammed his cast down on the counter, shattering the cast. And he brushed the pieces in a trash can. And he put his hand in his pocket, in his suit pocket, and he went and taught his class. And, you know, he would tell this story, and then he oftentimes, you know, he'd say, oh, I, I, can, I can feel in my wrist it's going to rain, you know, because <laughs> it, it never healed fully. You know, and he would tell this story, and whenever someone in the family, in his view, wasn't trying hard, wasn't sticking to it, wasn't fighting through it, wasn't committed, and... You know, to me, it was a symbol of two things. One, that just the uh, importance of living your principles and being tenacious in living your principles. And two, tremendous belief in the power of education. Mm-hmm. That in that classroom, amazing things were going to happen for kids that would make a difference in their life. And mm-hmm. he wasn't going to let that be stopped because by of this rule. Mm-hmm. And so if the cast was in the way mm-hmm. of the amazing learning that was on the other side of that classroom door, then the cast had to go because he was <laughs> going to go teach his class. And, you know, as a teacher, as a principal, as a state leader, and the work that I do now at the federal level, all of it to me is about trying to do what my father, my father's example was, you know, trying to fight for kids to make sure they have access to opportunity. Now, my uncle, his youngest brother, he was a Tuskegee Airman, one of the first African-American pilots during, during World War II. He came back uh, from his service to find that he couldn't get a job as an accountant, even though he'd been trained as an accountant, couldn't get a job as an accountant as an African-American man. So he became a firefighter. Imagine, you know, you've gone, you've, you've risked your life for your country, you've gone to serve your country, you've been treated badly as a Tuskegee Airman war with racism and discrimination. You can't get a job in the field that you've studied for because of discrimination. And your response to that is to go risk your life to save your fellow citizen as a firefighter. That's who he was. Mm-hmm. And he went back into the military. Ultimately, was career military, career Air Force, uh, retired as a colonel. And I actually went to live with my uncle uh, after I got kicked out of high school. Mm-hmm. And he helped me get my life headed in the right direction. And... You know, I can remember the conversation that we had where he said to me, you know, I can't change, you can't change the things that have happened to you in your life. Because as a teenager, I was, I was angry at adults. I felt like adults had let me down. And he said, I can't change what happened with your parents. I can't change the things you've gone through. But you now are a young man, and you're going to define who you are and what you want your life to be. And that's up to you. And that was a very powerful conversation. And his example inspires me because, uh, one, it's so clear that we, as adults, can choose our path and we've got to make, mm-hmm. we've got to make, we've got to uh, make our decisions with the knowledge that, 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 that we're, in, we're in control of our choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, he's had such tremendous patriotism, right? mm-hmm. tremendous belief in what America stood for, even when it wasn't provided to him. You know, he, he would say that for him and for the Tuskegee Airmen, you know, they would worry was someone going to put 
water in their gas tank, right? They would not have access to the officer's club where other pilots would go. Uh, so they have to pack their own food. You know, they did not have, they were not treated mm -hmm. with the same respect and dignity as white pilots. But he believed deeply in mm -hmm. the principle that America was about equality and, and mm -hmm. uh, democracy and, and that America could be better still. And mm -hmm. he lived that belief. And, you know, it was very important to him and to my Aunt Jean, his wife, that they, uh, that their final resting place would be Arlington. Hmm. And it was powerful to be at, at Arlington for the ceremony after he passed. Because for them, that was a recognition from the United States of the service of Tuskegee Airmen and what they contributed to this country, despite the discrimination they faced. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I see injustice, when I see ways in which I worry that we're not living up to our values around equality and democracy as a country, I think about my uncle's example and I... It just make, I just get more determined mm -hmm. uh, to keep fighting for those values. So the thing he said to you about you decide, like this is, this is up to you, you're a young man now, which kind of, which kind of person are you going to end up being? I feel like as a teacher, I meet, and a principal, I made that speech about once a day, mm -hmm. right? Like that was an orientation that I had to young people in whom I believed deeply, mm -hmm. but who were not delivering, right? Who were, who were making bad choices and who were not doing well in school, mm. not coming, not doing well if they did come, like, you know, all kinds of, from my perspective, choices that they were making that mm -hmm. were, mm -hmm. that were mm -hmm. setting them up to not be the person mm -hmm. I knew they could be. And I'm wondering now, like, the, the more I've come to learn about what it takes to create a learning curve in young people, particularly 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th grade young people who have compounded skill deficits and knowledge deficits. It strikes me now with a bit of shame and regret, if I'm being honest, that to say to, to a young person standing in, in my school, this is on you, show up a different way, was not really enough. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, the more I learn about what it's going to take to confront a compounded set of deficits and skills, you know, just sort of missing prerequisite skills, missing knowledge, and, and, and what it will take to create a circumstance where the choice a young person makes is on a, if you will, a level playing field, is on a playing field where they have what they need in order to live the life they could imagine for themselves. It, it's occurring to me now that as an educator, when I, when I make that offer, when I say, be who you think you can, that there's a responsibility on me also I don't think I was always providing a productive enough environment. I don't think I was always providing the kind of environment that would have set those, set all my students up for success, for citizenship, success for, you know, readiness to participate in discourse, ready to thrive in college, ready to have a career that gives them meaningful work, gives them a way with which they can sustain a family. I, I didn't know, <laughs> I still don't know. I think we're learning now, right? Like about like, what it will take to, to confront those compounded deficits, what it will take to create a learning environment where students graduate with the capacity to confront 12th mm. grade texts, where they graduate handling fluently Algebra 2 and walk into the world ready to wield it. And so it strikes, so like I'm hearing you say this about your uncle, and I know what he meant to you, and his role in your life was quite different than that of your educators, but I am hearing it, and I'm feeling uncomfortable about the fact that I made that speech often without providing the kind of learning environment I needed to that, that could really make that offer true. Mm -hmm. No, that's a fair point. I mean, I think we have to, as the adults, figure out how we give the tools to make, this, to, to make the substance of the choice real, mm -hmm. right? That, that students need access to the to the tools and your point about prerequisite skills is right. Um, That's a nerdy thing to say in the middle of this conversation, but no, no. I mean, I, I think we we've got to grapple with that. You know, what you have talked about as the opportunity gaps that we see for our low-income students, our students of color, that 
when folks don't have access to opportunity to just to 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 just say it's on you doesn't capture the full scope of the challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for my uncle, you know, he was also providing me with this environment, right. Mm -hmm. right, that helped me get my life on track. That's right. You know, for the first time in my life, dinner. Uh, more at least since I had been eight and my mm. mom passed, you know, dinner at a regular time and, you know, somebody checking on me to make sure I was doing the things I was supposed to do and um, somebody to go to when I was struggling with things, right? Those those resources yes. were also a part of that package along with the message around taking responsibility for the kind of adult I wanted to be. We've got to ask ourselves, are we doing that for our kids? Are we giving them access to those opportunities. And they could be small things and big things. You know, I think about the fact in our civil rights data collection survey at the education department, we show that we have 1.6 million kids who go to schools where there's a sworn law enforcement officer and no school counselor. So when we say to those young people, you should choose post-secondary education or training options if you want to succeed after you leave high school. Well, saying that, but then they don't have access to a counselor. But they do have somebody who shows up every day for law enforcement reasons. That's sending a particular message, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's not giving them all the tools. Um, we know, for example, from recent research on texting, that you know, we lose a lot of kids who say they're going to go to college in the spring, and then they don't actually show up in college in the fall. And we know from recent research that texting over the summer, hey, did you turn in the form? Hey, did you... Did you, you know, did you sign up for your classes? The kinds of things that we know affluent parents to do with their kids. Mm -hmm. you know, my kids would call it nagging, right? <laughs> that for low-income kids, for first-generation college students, they may not have someone to do that mm -hmm. nagging because their families may not have had that experience with college mm -hmm. or know those things need to be done. And so with texting, a very low-cost intervention, we can make a difference in whether or not we see summer melt students um, failing to go on to college. Texting. Mm -hmm. So like the, the question I think all of us have to be asking as educational institutions is what more can we do to achieve the goal of students graduating ready for what's next? And, you know, part of my message when I was a principal to my teachers was as a team, we've just got to ask ourselves every day, what else, what more? Mm -hmm. How do we help you know, more of our kids. How do we help the kid who's struggling the most? What else can we do? What, what can, how can we put in place the tools and processes mm -hmm. that will help them to succeed? And we got to keep doing it. You know, I, 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 when I, I think about how we as a society act around juvenile justice, we essentially say, you've made a mistake at 17. We're done with you as a society. Mm -hmm. and we're going to throw you away. That's horrendous. So short-sighted. It's bad for our safety and security. It's bad for the health of our economy and our democracy. What we should say is you made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to help you get access to tools and opportunities that are going to give you the chance to make a different choice in how you live your life going forward. And so we should be providing educational opportunities in juvenile justice facilities, in prisons mm -hmm. for adults, mm -hmm. that help give people a meaningful second chance so they can make a different choice. Because mm -hmm. if we don't do that, we are locking them into a cycle. Mm -hmm. It's bad for them, bad for their kids, bad for their community, and ultimately bad for all of us as a society. And what do you think we're learning now? Like, what do you think we know now that we didn't know 10 years ago about how to do that, about how to provide someone with the skills and knowledge they need in order to, in order to become a protected member of society? I mean, what's so fascinating is we have, we have this growing evidence base around the kinds of things that work. You know, we know, for example, that students not only need to learn to decode in the early grades, but we've got to build their knowledge base so that once they decode the words, they can make meaning of them. Mm -hmm. Their vocabulary and their knowledge about the world will shape whether or not they're able not just to decode, but to comprehend text. We know that. Mm -hmm. And yet, when we know that the staircase of that complexity, knowledge, vocabulary just grows year after year. That's right. That's right. But we aren't, but we aren't acting on it. Uh -huh. uh, not in the ways that we should. And we know that students at the high school level who have the opportunity to participate in uh, 
college level work, mm-hmm. I'm more likely to graduate from high school, go on to college, persistent college, graduate from college. And yet, we have high schools where you can't take, can't take AP class, can't take college level work. Mm-hmm. You can't even take physics, chemistry, algebra two, as I mentioned earlier. So that you know, we know access to those courses makes a difference, mm-hmm. and yet we have schools that don't provide that access. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that math knowledge depends on both procedures, that is, a fluency with mm-hmm. mathematical procedures. That's key for math success. But we also know conceptual understanding, mathematical reasoning mm-hmm. is key for long-term success in math. And yet, in too many places, we are trapped in a false dichotomy. We're either doing all conceptual and no procedural fluency, or we're doing all procedures and no conceptual work. And so students are not equipped with the math skills they need to be successful in college careers or life. And so, you know, we have this evidence. We're not acting on it. Well, one of the things I think about um, as a parent and as a, a principal and as a teacher, like with all those hats on, I think about, you know, the evidence may say that about conceptual work, but when I when I look at a, a complicated problem in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, I I know how to cross multiply. I know how to employ FOIL. I know how to carry the one. But I didn't learn math in a way that allows me to unpack and explain what those numbers mean. And so I know that a huge the distance between us being able to execute our math lessons in a way that treats equally procedure and, and concept just would require a, a, a ton of learning on the part. If I'm, if I'm a principal who's supervising a middle school, like I, I would need to understand ratio in a significantly different way than the way I do today. Right? And so like if that challenge is in front of us, what thoughts do you have about about that learning curve for all of us as educators if we're to provide that sort of math environment. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to we've got to invest in uh, what some people would refer to as pedagogical content knowledge, sort of the knowledge not only of math, but how do you teach these math concepts? How do you help students understand uh, proportional reasoning, for example? And um, that is a gettable set of skill. Mm-hmm. Um, we ought to be doing more of that in teacher preparation. Mm-hmm. I particularly worry that many elementary teacher preparation programs pay very little attention to math. And then teachers, unfortunately, then are in the position where they're in school charged with teaching math without being able to draw on that base of pedagogical content knowledge. So it should start in teacher preparation. But for current teachers and principals, that has to be a part of the professional development. What is the pedagogical content knowledge to be able to execute against these higher standards? When we look at our international competitors who are outperforming us, particularly in math, what we see is just a much more intentional and thoughtful investment in that pedagogical content knowledge around math. Mm-hmm. Deeper conceptual understanding. There's a great book by Li Ping Ma comparing teachers in China with teachers in the U.S. and finding that oftentimes the teachers in teaching elementary school in China often have less kind of formal education than American teachers, but deeper understanding of conceptual math, and they are therefore able to convey that in their lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got, to, we've got to do better there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, folks are working on that, and I, I think we have lots of opportunities to make some real progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we don't, we will not be able to produce the mm-hmm. engineers that we need for the long-term competitiveness of our economy. And we won't be able to produce the citizens we need to evaluate the, all the mathematical information that informs how we look at things like climate change or how we think about difficult public policy questions around mass incarceration or access to health care. You know, or voting. Or voting, right? Every day you open the newspaper and there's some graphs and there's some charts and there's a bunch of statistics that you need to sort through mm-hmm. to come to a reasoned view about mm-hmm. areas of important um, civic consequence. Right. And we, we owe it to our students to give them the tools to do that. I was in a school recently uh, walking the school with the principal and we were looking at her math instruction and this, this issue of like 
procedure versus concepts kept coming up. And it was every time for us, looking at the big picture of the classroom and then coming out and kind of looking at trends across classrooms, it was like the central issue was that the adults in the building weren't as fluid as they needed to be in order to handle those conceptual parts of the lesson. Um, and the principal just sat down and looked at me and she was like, we need to be using all of our PD time to, talk, to get smarter about math, to talk about math. Um, I, I don't even know how to do that, right? So like a, a part of it is just is just sort of almost like with a bias question, just saying, okay, <laughs> we have a problem. This is a thing we need to get smarter about. Let's just name that for each other and also name that like we are in the middle of a huge learning curve. Mm, mm. I think one of the pressures we place on ourselves, because if I hear you say we need to learn more about math, my immediate response is like, okay, how? Like we get frozen, right? We get frozen on like, what is the solution for that? And how do I, how do I find the resources to be able to do that? And I know that's part of the work that we're, that we're attending to in our project, but I, I just wonder what you're thinking about kind of the orientation we all need to have as it relates to our learning mm -hmm. against all this research mm -hmm. and against all this pedagogical content knowledge. Because it can be frustrating to hear you know, how far we have to go, and we don't totally know how. Yeah, yeah. Well, two thoughts. One is that as people engage in this work, we've got to be thinking about what does this look like for our kids in the classroom. And one example is, you know, when you come up with sample problems, mm -hmm. some numbers work better for sample problems than others. Mm -hmm. Which ones should I choose? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a pedagog pedagogical content knowledge mm -hmm. question, mm -hmm. right? What are the most common misunderstandings that students might have mm -hmm. about XYZ skill? Mm -hmm. That's a pedagogical content knowledge question. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, you know, do I know more math? But it's, do I know more about how I teach this yeah. math And, to and my am students? I fluent enough in what might go wrong that, in the that's room? Right. That's and right. What, and what that's mistakes right. or, or that's misconceptions right. that's that right. might have. That's right. So maybe that makes the mountain that much higher to climb. But, well, but it also feels to me, I mean, one of the things I've learned from you is that you, you're, you're always saying, like, just pick a thing, pick one thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And, if, and I mean, just in this one small math question, it's like, okay, so if I just went after what were the, what are the three most probable misconceptions in this class? That's right. That's I can right. kind of organize and prepare myself for it. We are running out of time, so I just want to ask you one quick question. We're all, we're all going through a lot right now. We're all a little raw. We're all a little disoriented. We're learning a lot about democracy and what it's built of and what, uh, what its foundations are. And I just, I'd love to hear you just say a few final thoughts about the role educators play, can play, ought to play, need to play in protecting our democracy. A lot of thoughts on that. I mean, one is we've got to, we've got to make sure that our classrooms and schools are safe and inclusive environments for all our kids. And we've got to be the ones who say to our LGBT young people, the school and this classroom is for you. Mm -hmm. We've got to be the ones who say to our Muslim kids, the school, this classroom, this community is for you. We've got to be the ones who stand up for our kids, for our undocumented young people and say, this school, this classroom, educational opportunity, that's for you. So we've got to, we've got to protect our kids. Two, We've got to prepare our young people to be citizens in the fullest sense, not just to vote. We want them to vote. But citizenship is not just voting. It's also being active. It's being engaging with your neighbor around local problems. It's writing the letter to, the, to your congressman. It's, it's organizing the rally. It's doing the community service. It's organizing the community project. It's persuading a legislator around a bill. It's filling out the petition, it's going to the march, it's sitting in, it's all of these things that are part of being an active citizen. We've got to make sure our young people have the knowledge to do that. We've got to make sure that they have the understanding of the institutions of government, how, you know, how government works, um, history and geography, all the things that we try to do in social studies, but really our cross-curricular um, goals in terms of knowledge for students. We've got to make sure that students have the ability to discern, to be able to, to tell the difference between fake news and real news, to identify bias in the things that they read, to understand 
the difference between an objective source and a biased source. Those, those are important skills. We've got to make sure that young people uh, have the ability to see the world through someone else's eyes, the ability to do perspective taking, that they have the ability to make an argument supported by evidence, to, to, to not just assert their beliefs, but to make an argument that might persuade somebody supported by good evidence. Uh, and they've got to be able to read well to do that because they've got to draw on some of that evidence from the text that they read. We've got to make sure that young people are able to do that in writing. Mm -hmm. They're able to write in a way that is coherent and thoughtful and articulates an, an argument and supports it with evidence. We've got to make sure that they have the mathematical reasoning skills, as we were talking about earlier, to sort through with statistics and data and, and come to well-reasoned, well-informed opinions. And we've got to make sure that they are ready to take action in their communities to make a difference. And the difference could be in my, you know, on my block, it could be in my neighborhood, it could be in my town or my city, it could be in my state, it could be at the federal level, it could be an international, but yeah. we've got to help students connect mm -hmm. their concerns and thoughts and fears and mm -hmm. goals to civic action that makes a difference to make the world better. And we do that with the knowledge that that is fundamental to what America is about. America is a nation. We have, we have difficult moments in our history, but at the end of the day, our history is one of expanding uh, circles of opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, each generation trying to broaden opportunity, trying to better fulfill the promise of democracy and, and equality of opportunity that are fundamental to who we are as Americans. And so the task for us as educators, how do we empower our students to be that in the world, to be a force for greater opportunity, for better living out America's promise around democracy and equality. And if we do that every day, if we, we ask ourselves every day, how are we helping our students to do that? Uh, we will be making what uh, John Lewis, uh, civil rights activist, calls good trouble, right? That, that we will be acting in ways that make our, make our society stronger and more and more healthy. Thanks, John. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for the conversation.